0: Welcome to the Commerce Talks podcast, episode number 47. Uh, you might have seen that uh, it's not Wimlex anymore because uh, we just found a new name uh, from the Wimlex team. Only I, I'm left and uh, Lina also is left. Um, Wilhelm left the debt agency uh, and they're focusing on his new fund. That was the reason why we've decided to give us a new name. Now it's uh, Commerce Talks, and we will publish now weekly episodes, uh, hopefully, with our new regular guest, Andre. So Andre is here uh, today um, as he joined Spryker only a couple of days ago uh, in our US team. And he has a tremendous experience in the commerce industry with intershop and elastic pass. He was heading the intershop business for over a decade in the US. As we are now starting with the US business with Spryker, that is a very, very valuable addition to our team and he is most likely the most valuable addition to the former Wimlex team, now Commerce Talks team. So, welcome, Andre, uh, and uh, we will give him some minutes to introduce himself, give him some room, and then we will dive into the following questions. Uh, what was the InterShop story from a from a US perspective over the last two decades? What has he learned when it comes to the different vendors in the US market that might pretty much differ from our view in Europe uh, when it comes to commerce vendors. And then we're going to talk about an article from uh, Seeking Alpha where uh, th- where this article was titled Shopify, the best operating system for commerce. Uh, and I have a big question mark here, but uh, we will come to that uh, later. So Andre, tell please our new listeners and, ex- uh, and old listeners who you are and uh, what you're doing for us right now.
1: Thank you, Alex. Um, yeah, I'm really excited to join the uh, Spryker team here in the US. Um, obviously, uh, um, there's a great Great growth trajectory going on um, with the extension of Spryker into the US. Um, I just recently started basically last week as the uh, VP us go to market and industry solutions and hopefully I can contribute in that role uh, in various facets to uh, you know gaining footprint here in the US, extending market share um, and gaining some some good traction in in North America. Um, a little bit about myself. Um, I have been in the e-commerce space for over 24 years now, actually. So since 97, that's when I joined in the shop originally. Um, you know, I was, I was fortunate to really gain experience in all different facets of the e-commerce market from leading large implementations across the globe, including, um, projects like, uh, Hewlett Packard, Sun Microsystems, the Otto Group, um, and so on. Um, I was appointed to lead uh, next generation product development for Innershop, um, uh, which basically led to our Innershop 7 product uh, on the Innershop site, and uh, at the same time to the uh, GSI Commerce V11 program uh, back in the day. And uh, since I always had a big interest on bridging really the product side in the market, uh, I was also building product marketing and strategy um, out for for InnoShop to really bring the market experience, the market trends into the product and the product development, uh, especially uh, when we saw a big change in the market with mobile um, becoming very, very popular and uh, the customer exchange really moving towards uh, new devices and so on. Um, and then... Really in the past few years at ender shop uh, before joining elastic path um i shifted focus to really the us side in in various roles um you know um gaining traction on the partner side um finding and building strategic alliances um primarily in the solution partner side um helping sales and supporting the sales side uh and gaining large customers like Dover corporation denal corporation etc um, so it was it was really exciting from that perspective, but at a certain point, um, you know, it was it was time to leave the nest, so to speak, and um, really experience um, some other vendors. And uh, so I was fortunate enough to join Elastic Path, which uh, is a little bit newer player, went through various facets, but is in its nature also a pure headless commerce vendor um i joined as a vp industry solutions to bring primarily uh the b2b market expertise into the various parts of the organization uh, uh to again to uh, to help the product team to help the go to market team um you know to help the alliances team and so on and um now i'm again glad to join spryker um in it's in this new endeavor
0: so, so what I what I hear here is that uh, maybe our paths uh, um, have crossed uh, um, when you have implemented uh, InterShop at the Auto Group. Though I didn't know that actually, or when you had Auto uh, Auto Group with InterShop. So w- w- when was that? That must be like the early two thousands when Auto Group uh, um, entered the InterShop train. That is so that is
1: correct. So that was probably around. 2000 2001. I'm not I'm not 100% sure, but uh, yeah, I spent some time in Hamburg. Spent some time with the team there, um, and obviously it was one of the largest clients that we had at the time at InnoShop.
0: And and how how do you see a progress of those those clients? Because uh, we have a very popular uh, uh, PowerPoint slide where we where we tell a little bit about the different e-commerce generations. And when Auto started with e-commerce in the early 2000s or in the late 90s and then um, entered the, the Intershop uh, uh, technology train in the early 2000s, so e-commerce was not as big as it is today, obviously, at the Auto Group. So mail order was like 99% of the business and uh, e-commerce in the early 2000s might have uh, been like ten, twenty million, whatever. When I joined the Auto Group in two thousand five, two thousand six, it was already a couple of one hundred millions euro in revenue, and there was all already like this this um, permanent blaming going on. Yeah, so we cannot update fast enough. Uh, you know, um, there's uh, now newer players uh, coming around. I think two thousand six was a time when Magento really entered the market, and like new online shops uh, uh, were starting everywhere, and then. Um, all of a sudden people are asking, hey, why does it take so long with Intershop updating a website? So why it's so complex? And then only two or three years later in 2009, kind of Zalando um, showed the market h- h- how it works. And um, I think it there was like a time between 2005 and 2010 where like there was constantly blaming uh, in 2011 2012 12 auto um, uh, tried to switch to its own um, front-end framework so to say uh, uh, to get a little bit more independent but um, you have been there like from the beginning and, uh, and and we both know there's no like there's no single truth it's not it's not just a system it's not because of sap it's not because of uh, there's not enough uh, competence. so um, was it really so hard for these older customers like auto to switch to into a new system so what was your experience so when you integrated intershop over there was there kind of a big wow moment a big like um, lots of people cheering about entering a new technology uh, uh, technology track so w- what was it because when i entered the the blaming was already around so that that would be very interesting to understand from your perspective
1: so, i mean it, it has been quite a while so I'm not sure if I recollect every every single thing correctly, but obviously there, there were different aspects of the other group. Um, so there was Auto itself, which was by far the largest part, right? Which was traditional catalog provider. So you got your big fat catalogs every I don't know season, and you typically ordered from there. Um, and then you had Auto has quite a quite a number of subsidiaries, right? Like Bauer, like Sportcheck, I think is one of those, right? And and a bunch of others, and. Um, I think there's always politics involved. I mean, you know, it probably as well that when management changes, um, you know, they have their own ideas, they have their own relationships, uh, and things might change. Now, when we started the uh, relationship with other group, you know, e-commerce was, you know, was, was what it was back in the day. It was a basically a, a monolithic application. It was a full suite of, of the different components that you need to run basically your online business from a, from a really digital commerce perspective. Like you had your, your product information management, you had a transactional engine, you had your pricing promotion engine, your checkout processes and so on. And obviously the customer experience very much interwoven with the, uh, with the entire stack. I mean, those are the times before even mobile was a topic, right? It was before. The iPhone was even released. So everything was built as a full stack solution. Now, Innoshop is and was an enterprise solution. So, um, we served, um, complex, more complex customers quite well. And we had you know, we had the possibility to customize the systems any way you want. Now, with those customizations, of course, come the challenges of, of upgrades. Um, I think technology evolved tremendously since those days in context of, you know, API structures, architectural concepts, um and so on. So it's really hard to compare what we see to do and today. And when we talk about composable commerce and API first, uh, versus uh, back in the days where everything was basically, again, built as a monolith. Um So with that, I mean, every single vendor that we saw on the market had the same... Upgrade challenges, in my opinion. I think demandware was the first one that, that took the Innershop platform and tried to build, you know, and, and build a multi-tenant SaaS environment that tried to address it. But with those came some limitations on the customizability stuff. I think what has been done quite well was that, you know, Innershop built this concept of the pyramid, uh, which means we have a foundation and different layers of the application that um, could be leveraged by all the different brands of auto. And then you had customizations on top specifically for that brand, right. And there are specific processes. You would try to inherit as much as you could from uh, the core inner platform. Then on top, you had a core auto group platform, so to speak. And then you had the different variations and customizations for each individual brand. Now, Otto was really ambitious, um, in differentiating. They need to stay competitive in the market as a, as a big, big player. I think they were number two in the retail space globally and, um, basically, uh, did an evaluation, as far as I remember to uh, build a homegrown solution in order to fulfill all their specific needs, uh, versus building on top of, uh, you know, of an existing platform. And I think that's where some of the political t- discussions came into play, um, and eventually Auto Group, as far as I understand, moved to do a homegrown solution and a custom solution, while actually all the other brands stand on the Merschap platform.
0: Yeah, yeah that, uh, that's even true today. So some brands are sold already. So Sportcheck is not a part of the Auto Group anymore. Though there was a big change. But like you know, you, you entered it like 20 years ago. Obviously, there had been big changes and. <laughs> To be honest, uh, so it was the most successful mail order retailer. So at least they are still mm-hmm. existent, uh, um, other than like Quelle or Neckermann, who uh, who uh, went bankrupt uh, and the brand was then acquired by Otto. But when you you entered, I think the um, the the US market for Intershop in the um, in the late two thousand eight, two thousand nine or so. Um, Beginning So can can you tell us a little bit more about this experience? So when you entered this market, so who which players were around? Uh, what was the competitive landscape? Because if you're, looking to, if you're looking to Gardner's Magic Quadrant today, that was like very different uh, 10 years ago. So c- can you tell us if customers were just awaiting uh, the, the, the Intershop train in the US or, uh, and what actually did they use before?
1: So I moved, I moved beginning of 2004. Um, is when I specifically moved to the US. Um, and I think we, we saw a few market changes there. We, we were still kind of at the, at the end of the, uh, you know, market crash, you know, after the, uh, the new economy bubble burst, uh, in 2001. So I think, you know, the, the industry, um, still struggled, um, and, and had challenges. You know, some of the vendors suddenly disappeared. We still, that was still the timeframe where, you know, we had the broad versions, the blue martinis and, and they didn't exist anymore, basically. Um, it's actually a good question to recall the vendors right at that time, right at that year is, is, is probably tough and I probably would have to have another look. But, uh, you know, you had the main vendors, I think, in the enterprise space around Oracle and ADG, um, IBM. Um, I think Hypers, if I would have to, I would have to look was just maybe at the beginning here. That was probably before the acquisition, um, or the, the, the joining with the, with iCongo. Um, and then a, a bunch of, of other smaller players as well so it wasn't it, it was kind of not it was in a transition to a certain extent um, and um, we still saw a lot of replacement of homegrown solutions with with customers and and customers just starting in the space uh, to a, to a large extent but I also remember, you know, when you look at the late nineties and, and two thousands, um, the telco space had a certain boom, you know, with, you know, the internet becoming more and more popular and the websites in general and, and kind of just hosting sites, right? Even for, for many companies and, and folks, e-commerce was the next step, which was still a big step for a lot of those companies. And the telco space actually back in the day, similar to, to a certain extent to, to some of the vendors now try to provide these Entry level solutions. So we saw companies um providing solutions like epages. Um telcos like providing these your know, one on one, I think, was was one of those, you know, where you pay a certain small monthly fee, but you can set up a templatized store. Um and so on. And then you had obviously you know the large customers with their with their custom solution.
0: And uh um, and um you then joined Elastic Pass in 2019. So, what, what was the what was the landscape looking then in 2019? Uh, so, who was a strong player in the US? What was the perspective of a um, chief digital officer in the US when he was look uh, when he was looking out for new vendor solutions new, for new software solutions in the e-commerce space? So, I think
1: you know if you look at really how the digital commerce market evolved, you know, we talked about the very early days, they were like, you know, you had really these licensed package software solutions, right, the, the, the monoliths, or how we call them today, at least, or you had your D, DIY solutions. Um, we saw then the change, you know, it was probably around two th- 2006 when it started. Um, and it was driven a lot by by demand and followed by some of the other vendors. You know, when we moved from a licensed software office, uh, of, uh offering to uh, kind of SaaS platforms. And, uh, so that was a, that was trend going on, you know, for, for a good decade there. Um, before we saw yet another trend where the whole SaaS platform offering evolved into SaaS headless and microservices. So by the time I, I basically moved, or if you take 2019, I think we had, three main buckets i would say so you had your traditional more traditional monolithic so to speak um e-commerce solutions you know like the more of the the hypers, the inner shop the ibm and so on on one hand on the other hand you had some of the more templated or cookie cutter solutions like a shopify for instance uh, more of a big commerce even though some of those are evolving and then the third one You know, with the, the, on a new architecture based on APIs, headless was a big common, common term here. And then even a step further with the uh, evolvement of a microservices page to pro modular platform. So we had all three, all three had their advantages and disadvantage. And I think we got to a point where, you know, the market is going through that change and companies, um, got confused on what is right for them and it's hard to distinguish what the benefits are, I think at at that time. And I, now we see more and more, I think the involvement of, you know, headless microservices, cloud API first uh, type of architectures in the space.
0: And and what what is your assessment on like the older vendors? So so we have all the newer uh, uh, vendors um, also active in the U S like, like a Vtex, like, uh, like Miracle, um, uh, for example, like Elastic Pass is one of the uh, w- one of the first that uh, went on the headless trains. So uh, compared to the incumbents, so the demand where, uh, which is now Salesforce Commerce, InterShop, um, Hybris is still around in the uh, uh, US. So if you would ask um, modern CGO uh, in a US organization today, how would he or she perceive the market? Does he really... Distinguish in those two kind of buckets and say, okay, old vendors versus new vendors, or is it a little bit more um, um, faceted?
1: Yeah, probably not. I mean what what we have seen, first of all, I think we have a pretty broad spectrum of vendors today, um, in my opinion. So we, we see still you know some of the of the traditional well-established blenders as well as up-and-coming players, you know, like like VTEX that you mentioned. Um, elastic path and with the changes that, that happened within the past, you know, couple of years, um, and so on. And I think it it depends a little bit who the decision makers are on the practitioner side. So if you have the IT team that is driving decision, many of those, you know, they are looking into microservices. You know, if it's the business side of things, they don't really care. As much as long as the business challenges are being addressed as long as they get the business value because um if they don't have to deal with the i t side of things the infrastructure deployment what have you, and let's say the price is right then uh, that's that's all they care about right they they want to get um their their system up and running they want to solve for their challenges they want to provide the right customer experience and then um hopefully they are thinking ahead and um you know have the uh, the options and the possibilities to uh, to extend from there and grow from there
0: mm. okay so but, but but um i got it like the business side is not interested at all so uh, Yes, they are interested, like so, sometimes, in fluffy stuff, and uh, uh, they are reading articles, which, which we are talking uh, about in a minute. Uh, um, but but but, eventually, they don't care. I I agree. But from a tech perspective, so we have in in German we have the uh, uh, we have the, uh, the the we have the so-called EDV Leiter. So the one who was actually heading the IT, but not not as a CTO, which we would uh, call him today, but rather the one who is responsible for the um, internal network um, stability, maybe for setting up the ERP system and handling the ERP system. So do you see still a lot of EDV lighter kind of types in the US or was it never there?
1: Um, we, we, do, we, do, we do see the IT side. And again, it depends a little bit on the, on the industry and, and the type of company um, you know, on the, on the B2B side of things. And for instance, in, in industries that providing more regulated products, uh, or that need to own kind of their environment infrastructure, let's say, like life sciences, as an example, government, um, IT departments are heavily involved and the IT side is important for various, for various reasons. Uh, for other companies, again, they, they couldn't care less as long as they can accomplish their, their business tasks. Um, so for me, when it comes to some of those topics, I think we on the vendor side understands benefits, differentiations. I'm not so sure that really the practitioners always understand it, even if they, if they are interested in microservices, because at least from my perspective, you know, my, um, multi-tenant SaaS as an example and, and what, what it stands for is, The, uh, the easy upgrade path. We talked about it before, right? It was hard in the past. It was, it was, um, it was really costly. It was time consuming to, to run those upgrades. Multi-tenant SaaS basically indicates you run on one code base, all the clients, you consume upgrades, um, without any downtime. Um, so it's, it's the value can be provided constantly. Now, at the end, you know, it shouldn't matter if it's at the end multi-tenant SaaS and you get seamless upgrade, or if it's a single tenant, for instance, or if it's an on-premise installation, as an example, right? Um, but I think the the value that 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 companies want is a seamless upgradability, and they translate it into something else, which which you know kind of goes in hand, but but doesn't have to be. So I don't know if it if it makes sense uh, from that perspective. Um, and the same, the same applies, you know, with with other parts of the technology. I think there are certain benefits for the vendor side to to handle it more effectively, differently. Um, I'm not sure if it always necessarily translates into into business benefits.
0: Mm. Okay, so from, so there were one one discussions we are usually having uh, uh, with uh, with industry peers from the vendor industry is that we are living in an industry where well, it's a lot about bragging. So people, people say, yeah, we are, we are Mach technology. We are microservice, uh, um, API based headless. And if you are going to a traditional trade fair, then out of a sudden, everybody is saying, yeah, we are Mach too. We are headless too. We are cloud first too. We are there. There are even companies uh, claiming they are cloud native, which is most likely one of the stupidest thing you can say, uh, uh, today. So, um, in, in this kind of industry environment, it's very hard for uh, for customers or, as you say, practitioners to identify the perfect partners. Uh, and it's the same not not only for the vendors; it's the same for the agencies. So the SIs, depending what you will ask them, they will always say, "Yeah, that's our core competence. We always build AI-powered chatbots. Yeah, we always build like uh, uh, responsive uh, uh, responsive websites." Uh, they would even claim projects from the past like the auto group for example and say yeah this was responsive too so um, w- what is the so, though in the Dach uh, market, the European market um, the um, um, the big analyst houses like Gartner and Forrester they are not, not a very popular source here, they are relevant but they are not as popular as in the US so um, do you think that Gartner and can can effectively guide through this kind of a, a bullshit bingo forest uh, to find the right vendor, the right partner, the right agency, the right uh, um, third-party integration. So it's not it's not um, limited um, to commerce vendors. So it's it's essentially every part of our industry is c- claiming that they can do it all. So even the content management system providers would say, yeah, we are headless too. Uh, we are native headless, even, uh, and we can totally add like a commerce functionality because it's, it's just adding a basket. You know, the content is there. You only need to add a basket. So what, what do you think is like the best way today, especially in the US to, to navigate through this? So can, can Gartner still help our analysts from Gartner Forrester? Are they, are they, um, deep enough into technology to understand what's going on?
1: So. I, I think so. I mean, Gartner, Gardner and Forrester are, you know, great resources and, um, they're very popular resources, you know, especially in the, in the U.S. I think most of the, uh, the enterprise practitioners, they, they have one way or another a relationship with, uh, some of the big analyst firms. And, you know, Forrester and Gartner as an example, they put a lot of effort into building those relationships on on the vendor side i mean their big business is obviously helping practitioners i mean we as a vendor have to understand that that's the core business for them is really helping them guiding them and navig- you know helping them navigate through exactly that you know and, and understanding for that specific industry for that specific you for those specific use cases that type of an application what are vendors they should be looking at now typically the analysts don't make a decision for the practitioners but they really guide them right and and really give them um options to look at you know based on the evaluations etc so both both companies uh, in this example you know and the others like idc they do evaluations almost yearly uh, around the vendor space and they it's it's a it's a great effort on on their side you know they're not only uh, talk to these companies they have the strategic briefings to understand really what what the vision is for for the specific vendors how they see the markets you know how they adapt to the market how they serve the market you know they see the product firsthand by by um you know having product demos they have an extensive they typically have extensive questionnaires and they verify a lot of what has been said with customer references so i think they they are getting a pretty all-around picture now is that picture perfect and can you prepare for a lot of those items? Yes, of course. But uh, I think they they do a pretty decent job in order to understand the market and the nuances of the different vendors and 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 help guide those those um, help the practitioners in in guiding.
0: So and 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 maybe one last question to understand the US market a little bit better before we are uh, digging into a an interesting article from uh, Seeking Alpha. So. Before uh, um, the crisis, have been the big trade shows uh, like we uh, knew in Germany, um, especially with the D-Mexco and maybe one former example might have been CeBIT. So was that the same in the U.S. where you met new vendors and customers on on trade shows? Now everything is is new, but uh, just from my understanding, though, was there like a big kind of D-Mexco in the U.S. where all the B2B and B2B businesses um, sent their... Um, experts to understand what's going on on the vendor side.
1: Yeah. I mean, we had, we had quite a few events, uh, for, for different, um, parts of the industry. So we had NRF as an example, more for the retail space, uh, which was typically beginning of the year it was kind of the kickoff of the year in New York. Uh, we had IRC as a different retail event, big one in the middle of the year. And then, uh, certain specific B2B events like B2B online and B2B next. And, you know, those trade shows, you know, help again to uh, expose, you know, the vendor, the vendor landscape, have a big exchange between the practitioners. I think that's the most important part of those shows is really, uh, um, have the practitioners go out there, see what is new, how the market evolved, talk to uh, some of the new vendors, some of the old vendors, do some comparison, but, uh, first and foremost also have the peer exchange, which I think is super critical in this industry to kind of really exchange what have worked for, for one company, you know, what have worked for other companies. How do they solve for certain challenges that, that companies are facing? So I think what we have seen over the, over the past few years is that there is a, is a more open exchange between practitioners, uh, and between, you know, the, the responsible folks on the digital side, um, to really you know, um, gain expertise and and leverage experience from from other companies.
0: Okay, got it. Then let's uh, uh, let's maybe deep dive into one article where uh, a not yet practitioner wrote about uh, his view on who might become the next operating system. The article actually stuck out because uh, we are calling our product operating system, and we have a very different understanding, obviously, from what the author author is thinking. So. The, the article is t- titled Shopify, the best operating system for commerce. Uh, and he's claiming a couple of things which I think we have to, uh, um, I have to um, um, discuss. So, um, the uh, the one thing he was claiming is, and, and he use, is using Red Bull as an example. So uh, um, he said that Red Bull was the bellwether um, that shows competitors and merchants that big brands don't necessarily need expensive enterprise software. So he was talking about um, an online shop project with Red Bull and Shopify. Um, he said the enterprise software market is rigged. So usually, if you pay for a Ferrari, you're getting a Ferrari. It's very different in the enterprise uh, uh, ma- ma- market. So customers pay millions more and get a uh, get a software which is much worse. So he's comparing um, SAP Hybris, demandverse Commerce, IBM. Uh, 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 IBM WebSphere, now HCL, uh, with Shopify. Um, Then he said, legacy enterprise software can be thought of as a mafia of companies and consulting firms. So uh, uh, we we will deep dive into that in a minute. So so he would still question, so what kind of company can afford today to buy an HCL solution, the old WebSphere solution? So that can be only... Uh, uh, because uh, somebody was uh, somebody was um, bribed uh, and uh, um, and then he said um, it's just good enough to have a front a front um, uh, front a technology like uh, uh, like shopify that makes you flexible to show your brand everywhere so he's obviously very much discussing the b2c uh, perspective uh, and uh, and maybe before we are diving in so the one thing which he has right, which is also part of this uh, PowerPoint slide, and we'll share it in our show notes, which we're usually saying the, um, the e-commerce market, the software market was democratized over the last uh, decade. So it was a very exclusive thing to have like an e-commerce technology in the late 90s. That was actually when uh, um, ATG or WebSphere uh, were the big players. Then it was democratized a little bit by Intershop and Hybris and uh, maybe the, the first uh, versions of demand there uh, for the more, for the bigger companies and Magento entered the market, um, uh, Shopware entered the market and, and eventually it became cheap and doable, by everybody with technologies like Shopify or Jimdo in Germany or ePages. So it's true. A problem that was very expensive to solve 20 years ago is now very easy to solve. So uh, um, that I think is correct, but what I would say is a problem evolved pretty much. So the case to just put an online shop in front of the customer, that is, that is the minor use case anymore for the, for the bigger brands. But let's park this kind of uh, assumption for, 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 uh, for a minute. So when you're listening to the claim Shopify, though standard SaaS technology for rather smaller businesses is a good operating system for enterprise companies. So, what comes to mind? So what, what, what do you think? Is there anything that, uh, uh, any immediate reaction?
1: Yeah, I, I think we have to really distinguish, you know, who who those companies are and, and where they are, you know, from a maturity perspective, you know, architectural requirements, um, uniqueness in their business, um, how many channels or sites they want to support and so on and so on. So I think, you're absolutely correct. I think it's, it's, it's primarily driven under, you know, in the retail space. And I think, you know, a lot of those references apply, you know, in, on the retail side. What Shopify has done really, really well, um, is to provide merchants an end-to-end solution that they can easily stand up, um, and, and, and get going. You know, um, it's, they can basically upload their information. Uh, they can use different templates, uh, for the front-end experience as an example. You know, set up, set up all the different business, business data and, and, you know, have transactions going through the, uh, through the environment. So if, if you're focusing on that fast time to market to test certain things, I think it's, it's, it's definitely, um, a choice and an option in, in the market. You know, if you look at Red Bull as an example, um, they're basically kind of, uh, um, in, in manufacturing space in general, you know, we have to distinguish, you know, what part of the business it is that that they run on Shopify, in my opinion. So, you know, if you talk about a, a brand manufacturer, as an example, that's now want to go direct to consumer, especially, you know, with the pandemic that we had and, you know, some of the disruptions in, you know, in the distribution channels, you know, getting access, direct access to to customers and so on, they needed to react. They they needed to test Certain things. And I think Shopify is certainly a platform that allows them to do exactly that. Quickly test a direct to consumer channel, for example, where they again provide a subset of, of products. They manage some, some of their standard pricing and again, transaction going. I don't necessarily think and agree that. That channel will be the long-term solution for manufacturers because the way they run the overall business and the complexity of the overall channel structure, um, it just cannot be solved in Shopify. Um, so again, you have to differentiate which part of the business can be done and how complex your business is overall. If you run, you know, your, your line of business through Shopify. And that's why we see. Uh, Shopify primarily targeting still, you know, the SMB and mid-market, you know, and then obviously you have Shopify Plus with some extended functionality and APIs that you can leverage for, you know, some custom storefronts, for instance, uh, that are going a little bit up market.
0: Okay. So then let's, let's state for, uh, for a minute, um, or maybe as a, um, as an intermediate, as an intermediate result. So. His claim that bigger brands don't necessarily uh, need enterprise software to, in the B2C space, in the retail space, uh, to create a brand experience for the customer, that's partly true. So whenever there's an idea at the Red Bull team saying, okay, I'd like to sell liquid XYZ to uh, uh, under a certain Red Bull brand, let's call it like Red Bull Black, in the Austrian market, so Shopify could be a choice. Where ten years ago there was only an InterShop or Hybris, for example, that could solve this kind of uh, uh, requirement. That's true. So we can we can
1: we can give him that, right? Yeah, I mean, if I think if you have a fairly straightforward store channel that you wanna that you wanna serve, I think it's it's definitely um, an option. You know, if you if you wanna leverage those. Even mobile optimized store for templates. If you want to test some social shopping connectors out, um, you know, if you want to leverage some of the POS capability that Shopify now provides, I think it's definitely an option. Now, if, if you look at, you know, more complex or into aggressive growth or supporting a variety of channels and business models, if you want to go, uh, international and you want to differentiate, and I think that's a big piece, and an important piece, is like for a lot of those companies, is how do you differentiate now in the market, right? How can you serve your customers better? How you how you create this customer stickiness? And I think a template solution will not cut it in the long term. So I think you you have to uh, to build uh, to to provide that uniqueness, and you have to be able to adapt easily to changing business and technology environments, you know, and, um, that might be a little bit harder to do with a more templated solution.
0: Okay. Agree. Then let's, uh, let's go to claim number two. So, um, customers, uh, software customers are paying, pay millions, uh, and the software is getting worse. So he's saying, so you're getting more and more like an old Toyota Camry, but paying for a Ferrari. Uh, um, this is a claim I usually get a lot when when it's about uh, enterprise software and it's it's not only uh, um, against enterprise software it's usually also against like the agency setup it's not the software is getting more expensive agency uh, would take takes longer to implement new changes so um, why is that so A is this claim true is do customers with enterprise software really get a shitty experience for lots of money or uh, what is the real truth behind that?
1: I think it's part is reflected on, on, on the history. And again, we we talked about it before, like how we go through a, through a transition in the market, you know, on the technology side as well as on the, you know, practitioner side with the, uh, with the raised customer experience and so on. And so if you talk about, you know, some, some of the larger companies with three letters and, and some others, um, you know, I, I think it was an experience, you know, they, they were expensive. You, you, you not buy only the e-commerce piece. You, you, to a certain extent, you, you had to buy into the ecosystem, you know, and it, it, it was expensive. And then, you know, I think the same author, um, you know, references how e-commerce became, you know, not necessarily priority for some of those companies anymore because they are focused on, on some other, comp- other components of their offering. And that, that's probably also true. So they don't get the same value over the years while they stay, still pay a lot of money for the upkeep, the maintenance, the customization uh, and so on. And, and for some of those more traditional, um, monolithic companies, it still holds true that the upgrade path is not, still not easy. Now, I think. There's risk to comparing those type of vendors and offerings with, you know, some of the other buckets that we discussed before, like that we see in the market that are modular, that are microservices-based, that are API-first, headless, and so on, that allow you for way more flexibility, agility, you know, and compose uh, your environment to your specific needs.
0: So, so I, I would try to sum it up the following way. So, you would say it might be true like for very old installations so when you kind of missed the upgrade path with intershop or hypers or whatever then you might be paying millions now for not getting any value but if you're like on a modern uh, um, headless first technology like Spryker, it might be more expensive than uh, than shopify but gives you like the freedom um, enterprise companies would need and therefore yes you pay more but you're getting more but there's some uh, uh, some duties on the customer side. That's what you're saying. So you just cannot leave the system alone, but you need to actively manage the upgrade path, the capabilities, the third-party integration. So uh, it's not it, it's not maintaining Absolutely. itself. Absolutely. Correct?
1: And I think it's important to also understand the cost of the e-commerce platform or the e-commerce solution is not the only factor. If I pay more for you know, uh, a, a different, a different vendor or a different solution and I increase my revenue, you know, I, you know, decrease my costs um, and so on. I, I think those numbers have to be looked at as well. So I, I think it's hard to compare that because you have to look at the outcome as well, not just at the cost factor, you know, the operational cost and so on.
0: Yeah. Okay. Got it. Um, then let's go to his third claim. Legacy enterprise software can be sort of a, as, of as a mafia of companies and consulting firms. <laughs> so, um, so he's obviously referencing to why is it still possible that HCL software, like now a company owned, uh, uh, I think by by an Indian mother company, why is it still possible they are in the market? They are not headless. They are. Uh, They are not um, API-based. They obviously don't have a microservice infrastructure um, under the hood. But still, they do win customers. uh, They win implementation. And his claim here is that is only because there's kind of a mafia structure around that is helping HCL to win customers. So is that? True? I'm not
1: sure that anybody is holding a pistol on your head to kind of choose HCL or IBM. Um, so now there might be other dependencies, but, um, so I, I think it's a little bit exaggerating. And I think, um, what is, what is true is that a lot of companies facing dependencies because they bought an the ecosystem. And for them, it's really hard and expensive to detangle that, you know, and, and kind of make a move into a, into a different solution or a different platform you also have to keep in mind if you if you do implementations with some of the largest eyes they're all there for the money you know they you know those implementations are typically seven seven or eight figures uh you know looking at you know the obviously more than just e-commerce the digital transformation but that's where maybe some of the uh, reflection comes from uh i think is is the dependency into an ecosystem uh that that you have created that you bought into that is hard to basically uh, get out of you know like we we see a lot of companies that had an sap on the erp side they bought e-commerce you know with, with Hypress, um the same on the salesforce size and or, or ibm and uh that makes it really tough to to pick best of breed components and to integrate into your uh, ecosystem
0: Okay, so you're essentially saying it it it's true. There's like people with a with a high uh, self interest in like earning money for earning implementation days, for or selling implementation days. Uh, or um, or a vendor would say if there's a customers pay million every year and not complaining, so why should I why should I charge less? Uh, so, but again, here there's a. On the customer side, there's a lot of potential to change this kind of situation. You know, nobody would, um, ha- would 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 uh, uh, would would uh, um, uh, pull out a pistol. Well, I think
1: yeah, companies. I mean, they face a challenge. So let's say you know, companies have implemented an IBM for the past five years, and it's supporting their digital business today. Now they know they are facing lim- certain limitations. Um, maybe they cannot grow in, in certain areas. Now it's a hard decision to be made. Are we, are we paying for the, uh, for the cost to upkeep the system, for the expensive customizations, uh, for certain expense on upgrade paths? Or am I going through a large re-implementation, replatforming project? Right. And I think a lot of, a lot of companies, a lot of folks, they're struggling with that decision and they, they just keep going because, uh, they don't want to undertake the, you know, the big replacement. And I think what we will see is with the more modular platforms, the microservices approach and, you know, like a Spryker uses, you know, we use a package capabilities and and again, very modular approach. I think we see more of a strangler pattern moving forward where companies get an opportunity uh, to incorporate uh, certain single components and then basically grow uh, the business from within and then basically uh, step-by-step replace it instead of uh, doing a Big bang uh, replatforming project. And I think that's that's where we see okay. a big shift.
0: Yep. I, I, I agree. Though let's maybe, let's maybe, uh, let's maybe deep dive in one or two other claims um, the author made on his uh, Seeking Alpha article. And and then I think we're running out of time. So we're almost uh, close to an hour now in uh, recording time. So uh, one claim he has is Shopify has a brighter future. Then on-premise Magento, Um, so he's usually he's actually um, using the Magento example because Magento was um, recently acquired by Adobe for two point six billion dollars. So, but I am not I I I don't recall one hundred percent, but I think it 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 was in that area. And um, then uh, then he referred to the on-premise part of Magento, uh, which he said leads to higher upfront costs, difficult to maintain, upgrade and scale. Uh, very challenging for the vendor like Magento to gather information on the usage uh, on the customer side so is this true though is on-premise dead?
1: I think on-prem in a traditional way is 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 probably dead I mean what we see is um, a differentiation between multi-tenant SaaS uh, which is obviously a big trend and we have seen it in retail and we see that uh, more and more up and coming uh, in, in other areas as well but uh we'll also see, uh, you know, that single tenant is there to stay. You know, now a lot of those companies are moving to the cloud. Cloud was an issue before because of data, perceived data, data security challenges or issues. But I think uh, companies now realized the benefits of cloud. So, so we will see that. Um, so I don't think companies are building and maintaining their own infrastructure, and installing the the software side on their side and maintain it in house. Uh, I think that is not the case. They might, but they might be uh, still managing it to the certain extent. Companies that want to have it in house and control it, but uh, in in cloud environments, be it like an AWS, Microsoft Azure, Google Cloud, um, and so on. So if you take the the term on premise uh, in a traditional way, that is within your own um, hosting centers then probably those times are gone by now.
0: Yeah. Okay, got it. And the last claim he's doing uh, is, or he was making is um, that BigCommerce, another very big vendor focusing on SMBs in the US market, I just IPO'd, I think, half a year ago. They're not able to catch up with the Shopify numbers. There only can be one ecosystem per, uh, per sector. So for the SMB sector, SaaS, e-commerce shops there can be only one winner which is Shopify so uh, big commerce uh, uh, won't do it so do, do you see it the same so you're a little bit closer in in, uh, in the US market you might have seen um, big commerce even as a, uh, a competitive vendor in cases where you have pitched with Elastic Pass so um, is there no chance for big commerce to catch up with Shopify or do you do you see it a little bit more differentiated
1: yeah I think it's it's a little bit hard to say maybe I mean both both are successful companies obviously you know he he claims and he he shows the numbers like in the increase of the customer base and the gmv that's running through the platform and and yeah to be honest just looking purely on those numbers shopify made a tremendous tremendous growth in in the in the past year specifically um now nevertheless i think there is a place for for big commerce um and, and I don't know that, that I would say that there's going to be one winner versus the other. I think there's going to be a differentiation happening. There's going to be a positioning. Company, companies will provide certain values in, in specific areas in specific industries. Um, and, and company will adapt their offering to differentiate. So, um, I, I wouldn't, I, I, I don't, you cannot see that black and white, I would say.
0: Okay. But, but there's. Some part of this claim might be true. So it's number-wise, it seems to be very hard for e-commerce to catch up.
1: I think what what Shopify does really well is again providing uh, for the merchant a great end-to-end solution with an easy button. And they do that, I think, right now for especially retail or, or parts of direct-to-consumer business. They do that really well.
0: Okay, cool thanks that's it for like the first episode sensational uh, uh, we will deep dive into the next episodes a little bit more uh, into the guest market talking about uh, curbside pickup uh, the tremendous success maybe our fellow fresh and uh, uh, one or two very interesting um, very interesting research documents from the Gartner uh, from the Gartner colleagues about composable commerce uh, but that's something we're going to talk about next week so Andre for our first uh, episode together uh, big thank you and see you next Thank week. Thank you, Alex.